The Appalachian mountain range is nearly 400 million years old. This place is ragged and torn and rumpled. This landscape is one of the most ancient in, in the world. For more than 1,500 miles, the chain snakes down from Canada through New York, Pennsylvania, and all of West Virginia. Large parts of Kentucky, Tennessee, Virginia, Maryland, and the Carolinas are dominated by the rugged Alleghenies and Cumberlands, the soaring Blue Ridge, and the Great Smoky Mountains to the south. All these ridges, gorges, and valleys came to be known collectively as Appalachia, a region as mysterious as it was remote. It was in the 1730s that the ancestors of today's Appalachians began streaming into the mountains. To escape hard times, they came from Germany, England, and Wales. But the group that would become most prominent in the mountains started their journey off the rugged coast of Northern Ireland. They were a grim, stern people, strong and simple, swayed by gusts of stormy passion the love of freedom rooted in their heart's core. They were of all men best fitted to conquer the wilderness and hold it against all comers. Teddy Roosevelt. Irish history accounts for the exodus. A hundred years earlier, King James of England had grown tired of battling rebellious Scots in the lowlands. The king thought he could use the Scots as a hedge against the bothersome Irish, so he offered them free farmsteads in Ulster, in the north of Ireland. What better thing to do than to get some of the borderland Scots, who were always giving you trouble, to go over and whoop up on the Irish? So they took advantage of it, moved to Ulster, got farms, and they became known as Scotch-Irish. For about a hundred years, the Scotch merged with the Irish. They mixed their words, they mixed their phrases, they mixed their horse-racing love. They took, in many ways, the best qualities of both people. After a century in Ulster, the Scotch-Irish were suffering religious persecution, rising rents, and bad harvests. Tens of thousands moved on to a second migration to the New World. This hybrid culture took root in the southern mountain wilderness of Appalachia. Tribes in old Tennessee. 
The Scots-Irish were very quick to be among the first settlers who actually made their permanent home in the mountains. Those mountains that had the funny smoky look in the morning. When we were got up to the top of the mountain and sat down very weary, we saw very high mountains lying to the north and south as far as we could discern. It was a pleasing, though dreadful, sight to see mountains and hills as if piled one upon the other. Robert Fallon, 1671. Soil. We've got honey milk, we've corn and oil. Once they made their permanent home in the mountains, they by no means were the only ones that settled in there, but they were the most colorful, most influential. You had the other mix of the Germans who came here. And the Germans are known for their orderliness and, uh, you know, their rules for everything and building really staunch barns uh, out of material that will last. The Scotch-Irish, on the other hand, tended to be more footloose and fancy-free. And the Scotch-Irish also were more hot-tempered than the Germans. And so when the Indians attacked, you wanted Scotch-Irish there because they were terrific fighters. But uh, when the Indians weren't there, the Germans were just as happy not to have the Scotch-Irish around. It was said at the time that whereas the English, when they got to America, would build a church, the Germans would build a barn, but the Scotch-Irish would build a whiskey still. It's when I'm dead and in my grave, no more corn Upon my tombstone, I wanted gallons Whiskey making was only one of the skills that the frontier migrants brought from the old world. With traditional crafts like quilting, pottery, and metalwork, they furnished their homes and cooked their meals as they always had. But the tradition closest to their hearts was music. Music was especially important. It gave them comfort. It was something that they could do themselves. They could sing. They could play their fiddles and have a dance and invite the neighbors over. The most important instrument the Scotch-Irish brought with them was the fiddle. Small, portable, and plaintive. The old fiddle tunes were greatly beloved and passed along through the generations. Those were the kind of songs that Thomas Jefferson probably played his fiddle by. And they were handed down, the reels and the jigs and the, the airs and the beautiful songs. 
And I was playing with the Chieftains one day, and I was playing this bowling technique, and, and Sean Keane from the group said, where did you learn that? And I said, from an old man in eastern Kentucky. He said, that's the way they play in Donegal. And uh, I was so flipped out, you know, to realize that that had come over here centuries ago. Along with fiddle music, many well-loved ballads made the long, hard trip across the ocean. In Scotland I was born and bred. In Scotland I was People packed up to make the journey to the new world. They had to leave almost everything behind. There wasn't enough room on the ship for anything. But there was enough room on that ship to memorize a few dozen songs. Singing those songs or playing those tunes made them feel uh, at home. You know, they had brought that part of their culture with them. Oh, mother, oh, mother, go dig my grave. Go dig it long and narrow. Sweet William died for me today. I'll die for him tomorrow. The ballads, of course, are basically narrative songs or story songs. Many of them go back in England as far back as the days of Shakespeare. And, you know, it comes from the troubadours in England, like in 14th, 15th, 16th century. They traveled the country. They would stop at a farmhouse. They would write a song for the person who lived there. That's what they had to say about the troubadour. He always paid his way. I didn't say that he paid his way with a song, but he did for a warm bed and breakfast in the morning. We still kind of do that. <laughs> mm -hmm. We do, don't we? <laughs> Those songs didn't die off in the mountains. They stayed in the mountains. Many of these songs dealt with the same kind of archetypal themes that soap operas today deal with. Deception, betrayal, murder, and true love. Barbara Allen is the classic example. If your name be Barbara Allen. Later on, we begin to get songs that dealt with topical subjects, especially as Americans began to take hold of the models of the old songs and create new songs around them. That's the only way you, you passed it down was to write about it. If anything happened, if someone got killed, there would be a song wrote about it. This man got this girl pregnant. And it's a true song. He was going to marry her. Or he told her he was going to marry her. That was what the story was about. And uh, they went out walking on a Sunday afternoon. And he threw her in the river, the Ohio River. I asked my love to take a walk. Just to walk a little way And as we walk, oh, may we talk All about our wedding 
Americans tended to change the songs. If you're going to have fun singing a good ballad, you've got to learn something from it. So on many American songs, you have tied on to the end of the ballad a moral. Down by the banks of the Ohio. Banks of the Ohio. The man takes the woman down to the banks of the Ohio and uh, pushes her in to drown. And I watched her as she floated down. Well, he's ultimately ap apprehended. But, you know, that's pretty direct. And only say that you'll be mine. In no other's arms and climb Down beside where the waters go Down by the banks of the Ohio It's one of those songs that has about a hundred verses. <laughs> mm -hmm. And I think he kills her, right? And killed her. He killed her. Plunged his knife into her breast. It's a hard thing to, to put into words. I think partly because there are all these isolated areas, different hollers in the mountains, where people got together and made music for themselves. I think things in other parts of the country tends to get uh, diluted in different ways, and some of the mountains, I think, uh, held some tradition in, in a way. I just always imagine in my mind when I hear this this music, I think about the, the journey that the musical style took and, and how, how it got changed in the mountains. I think about the time travel of that, of that music and, and uh, it's beautiful stuff. The same rugged mountains that held and nurtured music and culture also marked the western boundary of colonial America. These settlers who had come from the borderlands of England were living again on the edge of two worlds. But the rich land beyond the hills was bound to call to the adventurous pioneer. We're going west to Kentucky, down the road through Moccasin Gap, down the wilderness road. The dug road, the only creek road, the road down troublesome road to Moccasin Gap. There was a time when going way out west meant going out to Kentuck. It was dark and bloody ground, as the Indians called it. In 1769, a backcountry explorer forged his way across the Alleghenies. After traveling dark wilderness trails for five weeks, he and his men came upon a most remarkable sight. I had gained the summit of a commanding ridge, and looking round with astonishing delight, beheld the ample plains, the beauteous tracks below. Daniel Boone. 
Boone could see that the territory was ripe for farming. And six years later, he established a settlement in Kentucky. He was flatly defying British orders to stay east of the Alleghenies and avoid the French, who held lands to the west. Throughout the 18th century, English, French, settlers, and Indians were mired in combat in Appalachia. It was said a man could live from boyhood to old age and never know a time of peace. The culminating battle began when the colonies declared their independence in 1776. The American Revolution was hard fought in the mountains by all the friends and foes of the colonial cause. We have to remember that the revolution was a civil war. There were people on both sides. By and large, the people who were on the side of the crown or who were neutral or indifferent in Appalachia did not take up arms. One of the assumptions of the British army that invaded the South in the 1780s was that if they reached the back country, that the loyalists there would rise up, and that didn't happen. Most of the mountaineers, especially the Scotch-Irish, were fiercely committed to throwing over British rule. They were among the first to sign up when George Washington sent out the call for troops. The Scotch-Irish had declared that these colonies are, and of right ought to be, free and independent. And it was from these that came that outburst of rugged and determined people that made the Declaration of 1776 possible. Colonel A.K. McClure, newspaper editor. The most famous backcountry fighters were the over-mountain men of Tennessee, who defeated the stalwart Colonel Ferguson at the Battle of Kings Mountain in South Carolina. Ferguson had threatened to cross the Appalachians and exterminate the people if they didn't support the king. In his proclamation, he called the mountaineers white barbarians. To the colonel's surprise, the barbarians charged his forces, seeking cover behind rocks and chasing the soldiers up the mountain, tree by tree. They killed nearly 200 British troops including Colonel Ferguson. Well, they won. They won because they adopted the Indian style of warfare, as they had before. Uh, and they won because the loyalists uh, in the backwoods didn't rise up in support uh, of the British Army. The surprise victory snuffed out British hopes for taking the South and was a critical turning point in making America the land of the free. George Washington said if he ever had to make a last stand, he would want to stand with the over-mountain boys who knew how to shoot and fight. The revolution was a turning point for Appalachia. The region headed into a period of significant growth and change. Thousands of soldiers were rewarded with free homesteads, bringing a flood of new settlers to the mountains and the proud mountaineer would soon find himself doing battle with the very government he had just helped bring to power. Come on, all you booze fighters, if you want to hear about the kind of booze that we sell around here, 
It's made way back in the swamps and the hills where there's plenty of moonshine still. The Scotsman had always known how to make liquor from barley and rye. They quickly learned to use Indian crops instead. Wheat and corn, berries and potatoes, just about anything that grew. Selling whiskey was good business, much more profitable than selling any of the bulky raw crops. But George Washington's government was buried in debt, and one of the ways they tried to pay it off was with a tax on whiskey. The settlers of the Western country were so opposed to this tax because it was very reminiscent of the taxes that were imposed on the colonists under the rule of King George in England. The people that were on the frontier were the rugged individualists, they're the veterans of the American Revolution that fought to establish this country. They were very jealous of their property and their rights. They valued freedom. They did not want to be told what to do by, by anyone. A string of violent protests broke out from New York to Georgia. It became known as the Whiskey Rebellion, and it raged from 1791 to 1794. The new tax was not to be tolerated. It was a tax that was required to be paid in cash and cash was scarce on the frontier. Whiskey was a commodity that was used as money. Ministers were known to even accept payment for their Sunday services with whiskey. One drop will make a rabbit whip a bulldog. One drop will make a cat chase a wild hog. Make a bullfrog spit in a black snake's face and make a hard shell preacher fall from grace. It would be not uncommon when a federal tax collector would come here that they would tar and feather him. One violent outbreak in the Western Carolina region, they actually took the uh, excise tax collector and ground his nose off at a grinding wheel. And the lamb will lay down with the lion after drinking this old moonshine. This was a fight the settlers could not win. Washington took 13,000 troops into western Pennsylvania under his personal command. It was an army as big as the one that had fought the revolution. The rebellious moonshiners were crushed. Rules and regulations were bound to be imposed on these people who wanted to believe they could just be left alone. The Appalachian mountaineer could grow or make everything he needed to survive. He had learned to rely on himself and did not want outsiders dictating how he was to think or behave in politics or in religion. Immigrants had arrived in Appalachia with different traditions. There were Anglicans and Baptists from England, from Germany, a range of Protestant groups, and the Scotch-Irish were mostly Presbyterian. But the established churches could not find a foothold on the frontier, where distances were great and communication difficult. For a few generations, worship was held inside the family or in the most humble mountain chapel. 
religion most had carried with them was Calvinistic. Tough, dark, and demanding. The old intellectual Calvinism started giving way to this new thought that God is all loving. God would like to save us all. All we have to do is repent and ask for forgiveness and we can be saved. That's the doctrine of free will, that we have it upon ourselves to decide whether or not to be saved. Well, this is more optimistic. People could get happy with religion. By the 1740s, this more hopeful vision was spreading like burning tinder through the mountains. There began a long series of evangelical or enthusiastic religious revivals known as the Great Awakenings that would last more than 80 years. Ministers of every stripe swarmed into Appalachia, bound to bring the unchurched into the fold. Most of these people had never before seen a minister or heard the Lord's Prayer, service or sermon in their days. After service, they went to reveling, drinking, singing, dancing and whoring. And most of the company were drunk before I quitted the spot. Charles Woodmason, Minister, 1768. Presbyterians did not have enough educated ministers to reach the far-flung population. The Baptists and Methodists were more successful because they commissioned farmer preachers and sent them off into the mountains. They were called the circuit riders. They spoke a common language with the people they were trying to convert and inspired them to gather together for worship. Long ago when but a boy by 1800, the revival had found its most powerful outlet. Settlers left the hills by the thousands, on foot, on horseback, in the family wagon. They traveled long days to the great camp meetings under the mountain sky. Up in Cane Ridge, Kentucky, around Lexington, the Cane Ridge Revival had 25,000 people in 1801, which the population of Lexington, Kentucky, was about 5,000 people at that time. So people came from miles and miles and miles away. That was what was considered the first camp meetings. and music go hand in hand if you don't believe it read psalms i mean god is the creator of all beautiful things and music being one of the most beautiful gifts i think this earth could ever have music is our hope and our salvation in awfully hard times of struggle when you're living on the side of a mountain and you have a skinny mule trying to plow i mean horrible land that's barely feeding your babies and uh, you know, you got to have something to hope in. Oh man, what a wonderful thing to be able to go to church and talk to our Creator by way of music. The same revivals that energized the spirit would also transform religious music on the frontier. 
Like the ballads, religious songs were an essential part of life that had been carried from the old world, along with the traditional style of singing. By the end of the Great Awakenings, a very different sound was echoing through the mountain hollers. white and black people mingled at revival meetings. The white musicians picked up on African rhythms. They created blood-stirring songs to fit the new emotional religion. Songs that would become classics of gospel and bluegrass. Music of the spirit, music of the heart, carrying memories of a distant home. Songs that tell of hard times, of stormy passions, and a deep devotion to God. From the days of the first pioneers, music has been a binding force in the southern mountains. It is a gift to all the world from the people of Appalachia. region that covers 205,000 square miles in 13 states and is made up of 420 counties. It's bigger than California and every other state except for Alaska and Texas. Though the stereotype 
shows it as a rural and isolated place. It's the verse, both in terms of its population's ethnicities and its geographic features. Major cities, such as Pittsburgh and Cincinnati, are well within Appalachia's borders, but so are incredible natural features, such as the New River Gorge and Mount Katahdin. But Appalachia is something else and has been for over a century. Appalachia is America's biggest colony. To be specific, it is a resource colony, and its people, culture, civil society, and infrastructure have all suffered from this status and fact. The organization Earth Justice defines a resource colony as, quote, a plaything for industry and corporations to exploit, despoil, and leave to ruin, end quote. This is also known as having a resource curse. A region suffers under a resource curse when it has so many natural resources like oil, coal, or natural gas that they end up paradoxically actually having a worse record of economic development, fewer community resources, and less democracy when compared to other places with fewer natural resources. As fewer resources, leads to investment in not just one economic activity, but many, and into education, people, and innovation. This is certainly a descriptor of Appalachia and many of the communities and governments which are part of it. When we think about being a resource colony with a resource curse, all too often we think about the parts of the world that are less developed industrially being exploited by the world's industrial powers and international corporations. Yet, in the heart of the United States, the wealthiest nation in history, we find all the markings of corporate exploitation and occupation and all of the attendant consequences for Appalachia. Appalachia is a treasure trove of natural resources beginning with timber and accelerating through petroleum, natural gas, and on to the rich seams of coal, it has powered the industrial might and personal comfort of America for over 170 years. Beginning in the mid-1800s and growing exponentially after the end of the Civil War, Appalachian coal was in incredibly high demand. For nearly a century, the coal fields of West Virginia, Kentucky and Pennsylvania supplied the vast majority of America's coal. Much of it either heating homes, producing steel, and electricity. A situation that lasted until 1990. At the peak of its production, West Virginia, all by itself, produced half of the coal that came from Appalachia and employed more coal miners than any other state in the region. This level of production led to a situation where the entire economy of a vast swath of Appalachia and certainly entire states like West Virginia relied on the coal industry and the services provided to that industry. 
which meant that the people and corporations who owned that industry were supremely influential. This influence permanently warped the social, political, and cultural fabric of Appalachia. Corporations and the people who tend to run them are amoral. That is, completely indifferent to issues of fairness, compassion, humanity, or ethics. They are amoral because the capitalist culture of America demands that they put profit and material wealth above any other consideration, including human well-being, civil society, and the proper functioning of government. This means that the most influential element of Appalachian society only cared about their bottom line. They didn't care about the quality of Appalachia schools. They didn't care about the quality of local hospitals or clinics. They didn't care when the infrastructure, dams, mines, bridges, and roads they built largely for themselves failed and killed hundreds, if not thousands, of people. They cared about mine explosions and infrastructure failures only to the extent that production was delayed. Or, courts, ever so briefly, would hold them accountable. Because caring costs money, and corporations, especially resource extraction companies, are here only to make money. Farmington, West Virginia, November 20th, 1968. An explosion spread by coal dust and gas rips through nine working sections of the mine's west side. 78 miners die in the blast, and 21 survivors make their way to the surface. Everybody around here got their water from abandoned coal mines. So it's just what you know around here. To not know it wasn't being treated for a while, and drinking it, you know, you don't really know what you've come in contact with. All my kids have grew up here and, and we'd always been told it was clean. I was just making his bottles out of it like I would any other time until I was notified that it wasn't being treated and it had done been about nine, ten months. I mean it makes you sick to your stomach because you don't know what harm you've done to your child and you know it might not show up now but five years down the road you know it could affect him. <laughs> Two years ago is when we really started having major problems with the water. You know, everybody just up and quit. So we've everything that's been done, the community has done ourselves. We have to pay out of pocket. You know, if some a pipe bust or anything like that, we have to go get the part. And it's hard to just drop everything you're doing to go up there and fix something. But you have to, or you won't have water. And then if you keep letting the leak go and go and go, it'll eventually dry up. What you know, the reserve we have up there. You know, we've went through periods of not having any water at all, you know, for weeks or months at a time or just having a little bit of a drip. It was actually last year, uh, it was around no end of October, 1st of November, you could barely even wet your toothbrush with it. And actually the people that lived on the hill up here, they didn't have any at all. We've just been trying to keep the water flowing, you know, because we don't have the money to treat it. We don't know how to treat it. I won't drink it. Like, we just would buy a bottle of water, you know. I knew something was wrong with the water because we kept running out. You'd wash clothes and, and they'd be come back, you know, the water be dirty as can be. You don't know what you're drinking. You don't, 
And nobody, nobody can tell you nothing around here. You talk to one person, they'll tell you ten different things. We want somebody responsible for it or something, you know. I want clean water. I want it to come from somebody, you know, like a company or something. Yeah, it's like below poverty. It's like you get your own. And one morning I went over there and I just put my cup under the spigot and I pulled it back and it looked like muddy water. I was like, wow, man, I do not want this. I've never been into taking in contamination purposely. <laughs> it was a four-wheeler accident on Route 60 on the hard road. I woke up two weeks later in the hospital coming out of a coma. Right here is a piece of titanium plate. Right here is a piece of titanium plate. And right here is a piece of titanium plate. And there are 12 titanium screws for the three titanium plates. It was two weeks after my first surgery, I caught the infection on my brain. MRSA, M-R-S-A, I've always called it MRSA. I had MRSA and staph infection inside my head. And then after my second surgery, I told my surgeon about my living conditions, how it was here. He said, please just try to wear a shower cap or go somewhere else to where it is good, clean water. And I said, well, I'm going to do my best. Uh, I'm limited as to what I can do. Because of the first infection, it done serious damage to my liver. So I'm doing all I can to avoid anything that the doctors have told me because I was one before to just go about it my own way. I just finally realized the importance of the type of water that's coming in. They're supposed to, you know, redig the ditches, put new water lines in, uh, and hook us all up, you know, on meters, and we'll pay by the gallon and stuff like that. Basically, we won't have to do nothing no more, you know. They'll bill us, they'll fix it, they'll treat it you know, everything. It'll be good, clean drinking water. They was actually supposed to have started in April or May, and here it is almost July, and they still haven't. Say cheese! We're not a third world country, you know. We live in America, and it's 2017. You know, it ain't like our great-grandparents had to go out and pump water, you know. It should be when we come in, we should be able to turn on the faucet, and there's water. Terrible. Due to its status as being the only state completely within the Appalachian region, let's take a look at West Virginia as an example of how the people fare when it comes to a land being owned by corporations which only care about their bottom line and who are not based there. According to a 2013 study, just 25 individual owners, mostly corporations, own 17.6% of the entire state excluding public property. In fact, in six counties, primarily located in the southern coal fields of West Virginia, 50% of the county's private land is owned by just 10 landowners. When you look at land ownership throughout the entire state, all of the top 10 private landowners are headquartered out of state. To a large degree, West Virginia is not owned by West Virginians, much like the rest of Appalachia. It's occupied territory. At the time of that report, 
West Virginia's largest landowner was a relatively new type of corporation that did not exist earlier in the state's history. This is the Timber Management Company, whose sole mission is to hoard forest and other woodland as a financial asset, something that could be used to either finance other projects or used as a store of value in difficult times for the company. They fence and gate off huge amounts of forest within West Virginia and use it for nothing other than a financial resource. Typically, the citizens of the local community have no access or use of the land. For example, West Virginia's largest landowner is a North Carolina-based hardwood forest land company that owns over half a million acres across 31 of West Virginia's 55 counties. It owns more of West Virginia's private land than anyone or anything else. Land that no one uses for anything other than a private financial asset to benefit a company that is not headquartered in the state it largely owns. One of the most important indicators of being a resource colony is the amount of land and resources that are owned by people who do not live and are not based in that region. Appalachia is largely owned by other people. In a study conducted throughout Appalachia using representative samples, it was estimated that private companies own nearly half of the surface area of the entire region. Specifically, 43% of the land that constitutes Appalachia is owned by companies or corporate entities. When you also consider that various governments own about 8% of the land, you can see that less than half of the usable area of Appalachia is owned by the people who live there. This has been true since the beginning of Appalachia's identity. As early as 1810, 93% of the region that would become West Virginia, uh, the state synonymous with Appalachia and the only state to be completely within Appalachia, was owned by people who did not live there. Other states or regions that have experienced a rise in absentee ownership of property have addressed that issue through political processes wherein special fees or taxes are levied on properties that are owned by people or companies whose primary residence is not in the region. Or, those fees are levied when the absentee owners fail to maintain the property, develop the property, or use it in a purposeful manner. However, this simply is not happening in most of Appalachia. It's not an isolated problem in a city that may be affecting a single central business district or a few neighborhoods. This problem is pervasive throughout the region, which means that corporations are in control through dent of ownership and through absolute control of the economy. Resource and land companies use their outsized political influence to make sure they never have to use the land for the benefit of local citizens, much less pay their fair share of taxes. Natural resource companies have incredibly outsized amounts of political power in places like West Virginia and throughout Appalachia. In the states with large Appalachian regions, no politician of any party is viable if they propose anything that smacks of an attack on the dominant resource industry. By attack, what is generally meant is being required to pay one's fair share of taxes 
instead of playing Space Cowboy. I am Paula Jean Swearingen, candidate for United States Senate, and I approve this message. I was born in these hills. So was my grandfather, who lost his life to black lung disease. Coal miners today are still risking their lives to feed their families. They fight over pay, their health care, the ability to even retire at all. And it's not just them. It's teachers, nurses, small business owners, farmers, blue-collar citizens, fighting for a right to live in this state that we call home. Those decades of abuse are showing their effects with every business that closes its doors. For every child that we raise to leave these hills, not because they want to, it's because they have to. Complaining about taxes may be one of the oldest rights of any citizen anywhere in any nation. For a long time, taxes were generally seen as the whim and for the private benefit of a small ruling elite. But that's not the modern use of taxes when we talk about progressive democracies. Taxes are the price we pay to live in a safe, secure, civilized society. While we invest part of our savings to help finance the world's most efficient business system, at the same time we pay taxes to government to finance many kinds of services which also contribute to our way of life. For example, our taxes must provide the necessary funds to improve and expand our school system. Our taxes must be sufficient to pay for city streets, health, fire, and police protection, and of course, aid to the needy. Our state taxes help pay for highways, educational institutions, and among other things, help to finance important experiments to increase the productivity of our farms. Our federal taxes pay for irrigation and reclamation projects, for national parks, postal services, the Weather Bureau, and many other services. Our taxes have to pay for the enormous cost of past wars and provide the funds for a defense program which will ensure the safety of our country. In addition, all of us should be willing to pay whatever taxes are necessary to enable efficient government to improve or expand any essential service. Taxes are the price we pay so that we can give our children a better society in which to grow up. Taxes aren't the problem. It's only when they are unfair, inequitable, and thoughtlessly spent that a problem occurs. Yet the number one political goal of natural resource companies in any resource colony like Appalachia is to keep taxes on themselves so low that they can maximize their profits at the expense of our future and the basic needs of the communities they are exploiting. Because of their political control of the environment, based on large political donations and threats to leave should they be taxed the same as anyone else. They manage to scare politicians and the citizens they represent into submission, as if the role of an exploitable resource colony is the very best for which Appalachians can hope. 
how has that been working out for us? This influence is largely possible because of all the money you're able to hoard. A situation that becomes a vicious cycle where corporations can use the money they have stockpiled and their position of influence to keep their taxes absurdly low or even reduce them so they can then have more money and power to convince citizens and their representatives to lower those taxes again to the point where the society cannot properly function, which is exactly what these corporations want. An excellent example of this is the property tax. In most states, citizens who do not qualify for a rare exemption in the law pay property tax based on 100% of the value of what they own, typically their home or car. Resource corporations do not do this. From their point of view, property taxes are for suckers, and to them, common property owners like you and I are very much suckers. In many cases, companies that mine coal, manage forests, or extract natural gas have their property valued at only a fraction of its actual value. And then it's taxed even less on that already low valuation. This means two major things. One, our civil society simply doesn't have enough money coming in to maintain the basic needs. Schools, hospitals, roads, public safety. Two, the taxes that are collected are disproportionately on the shoulders and backs of individual citizens in the working and middle classes, the very people who can afford it the least. While these natural resource corporations haul lightly taxed truckloads of cash right out of Appalachia. Let's look specifically at Wyoming County, West Virginia, located in the heart of Coal Production Company. The top 10 landowners in that county hold 75.8% of the county's private land, and just two of those companies, the railroad Norfolk Southern that made its money transporting coal out of Appalachia, and the aforementioned Hartwood Forest Land Company of North Carolina together own 50%. Additionally, the land owned by these companies was grossly undervalued. For example, a subsidiary of Norfolk Southern, the Pocahontas Land Company, a notorious institution in southern West Virginia, owned more than 77,000 acres in Wyoming County, making it the owner of 25% of all private land in the county. According to the research conducted by Utah State University Forestry Extension Service in 1993, the value of a single tree as a bulwark against erosion and a provider of air conditioning, wildlife protection, and pollution reduction, and not including its timber value, was $273. When accounting for inflation, a tree is worth $505 in 2021. Using the Ohio State University Guide for Valuing Appalachian Timber, the minimum value of a tree is $150, though it could be as much as $1,600. Thus, the total minimal value of a mature tree in Appalachia is $655. The number of trees on an acre of undeveloped forest land varies from 300 to 800. 
Taking the minimal number of trees and multiplying that by the minimal value of a tree, an acre of Appalachian forest is worth no less than $196,800. Yet, in our Appalachian case study, those acres are only valued at $350. This is the land covered in valuable timber held specifically by the company for the purpose of providing an investment asset. Yet, the state purposely undervalued it so the company would have to pay far less in taxes than the citizens of West Virginia, whose government ostensibly serves and represents. Why? The ownership of so much land dictates more than just tax revenue. Much like a king or queen from the age of absolute monarchy in Europe, owning that much of the public space and private land creates an overwhelming authority for the elite who own it. They can dictate where new businesses are allowed to develop or if they are at all. They can prevent new businesses or potential rival businesses from even being formed for lack of space or land to begin. They can threaten to withhold or reduce the meager taxes they already pay in order to get government to act exactly the way they wish, including lowering their already low taxes. They prevent reasonable environmental protection. And they even regulate how much recreation local citizens can enjoy. While having never visited more of Appalachia than a governor's office, Appalachia's absentee property owners have so much money, they can dictate a narrative of society that supports their gross amount of private ownership, convincing people it's a heroic action to deprive the citizens of their land and services in the name of greater profits for millions and billionaires. When a political candidate runs on a platform of environmental protection, tax, and land reform, even in the name of doing what's right for the people, these coal and other natural resource companies can spend so much money as to not only drown out that candidate, but make her look any way they choose, so long as it is unacceptable to the social values of the voters. In Appalachia, this is true of both major parties. Money and ownership mean resource companies dictate the values of the people, through economic control and the flooding of our airways and internet with their questionable views, needs, and negative propaganda against anyone who denies them their maximal profit. And so we see the money generated by Appalachian labor, sacrifice, blood, and bodies pours not into Appalachian communities, but outside Appalachia, where the public isn't afraid to tax corporations properly, to build hospitals, schools, and public services in New York, Rhode Island, and Illinois, but never in Appalachia. Most of Appalachia consistently ranks low in educational attainment, in personal health, and in quality of life. But that's not because we are somehow deficient people. It was through our hard work that the American industrial system was able to become the most powerful in the world. Rather, it's because people who don't live here, 
People who only see us as resources to exploit and throw away only care about one thing. How much money can we Appalachians make for them? Because that's what happens to a colony. Colonies are meant to be exploited for the exclusive gain not of the people who live in the colony, but for the people who own the colony. That's the real reason the American Revolution happened. The reason the Irish Revolution happened. It's the reason the Indian Revolution happened. Because they were colonies being exploited by their owners for the benefit of only their oppressors. And they refused to allow it to happen anymore. There's a powerful line in a song from the musical Hamilton. Quote, when are these colonies going to rise up? End quote. We don't need folks with muskets and support from the French to free ourselves from our corporate overlords and their coin-operated elected officials. It's us. We only need ourselves. It's not the politicians' responsibility to do it for us. Yes, if they promise to represent us and our interests, we certainly should expect them to do so, but too many come right out and tell us that they won't put Appalachians first. Instead, they talk about the importance of coal, they talk about the importance of natural gas, and they talk about the importance of keeping taxes low on these already wealthy corporations who do not make Appalachia their home. And they never do what they should do for us. If resource corporations simply paid their taxes at the same rate, no more, just the same rate that we citizens of Appalachia already do, we would be able to have the type of society that the rest of the country and the best funded parts of the world already have. But that's not going to happen until we the people demand that it happen by electing officials who understand that, are willing to act on it, and we'll see we the people are willing to vote for them and determined to hold them accountable.